everybody, and welcome to From Plum Creek with Love, a little house on the prairie podcast. I'm your host, John Hernandez. For any listener out there who is participating in Dry January, congratulations. You are halfway through the month. For those listeners out there who are trying out the new thing, the damp January, good for you. According to articles that are popping up, damp January is more where you consider your intake of alcohol drink by drink. And while that method may work for some, it may not work for everyone. But in the long run, whatever you are participating in the month of January, the biggest thing to note is that you're making smart choices. If you like the challenge of just abstaining completely, go for that. If you're the kind of person who is strong enough to know when to say no, continue that. And again, now that we're halfway through the month of January, those participating in either of those, I hope you're seeing or feeling the benefits of it. And remember, if it didn't work out in January, you can always try again in February when Lent begins. And with that being said, let's get started on today's recap. Today's episode is entitled A New Beginning and debuted on October 6th, 1980. The episode was written by John T. Dugan and directed by William F. Claxton. We open up on a shot of the Garvey estate. Charles, along with Albert, who's 100% gone through a growth spurt, are there helping to load a moving van wagon. From around the corner comes Andy, who's also had a growth spurt, and these two teen boys, talking with deeper voices, are saying goodbye. Andy suggests Albert come and visit him in Sleepy Eye, and I have to say, it's not really goodbye, since you can actually get to Sleepy Eye and back in one day. We also find out that Charles is planning on heading to Sleepy Eye next week with a delivery. The Garvey men get into their wagon. Charles promises that he'll have the place cleaned up for the new owners, which isn't that what the Garveys were supposed to do? And with that, the Garveys, who have lived on the edge of town, are moving out. And we cut to Sleepy Eye, where Jonathan Garvey has already established a delivery service. Garvey freights. Well, he's working on taking over the business from a man named Sam. As the two discuss the business proposal and growth of Sleepy Eye, a man enters the building and introduces himself as Pete Rollins, the peacekeeper, aka private security officer. Pete Rollins continues that he should not be confused with the sheriff because they do have one in Sleepy Eye. However, he's described as useless and without a deputy. Apparently, the deputy position pays so poorly, no one has accepted the position. Pete Rollins continues that with the rapid growth of Sleepy Eye, it has also brought in 
a few bad apples. Following that up with offering his protective services to Jonathan Garvey and his new business. Jonathan Garvey says no thank you. He's good at protecting his own property. Sam, the former business owner, his last name is Pendergast. That's what Jonathan Garvey calls him after turning down a dinner invitation. He mentions that he already has dinner plans with some old friends over at the courthouse school. As Sam Pendergast and private security Pete Rollins leave the Garveys to unpack, they are reassured that if they do need any help, to give a holler. Cut to Sleepy Eye at Night and it just seems crazier than a night in Winoka. There's a drunken game of keep away being played out in the streets. It goes on for a while, until Jonathan Garvey, along with Andy, pass through the pack. Jonathan grabs the bottle and hands it back to the man, who then proceeds to bolt from the scene. One of the young hooligans asks Jonathan Garvey if he's looking for trouble, and apparently this hooligan needs to attend the school for the blind. Does he not see what a giant Jonathan Garvey is? Jonathan Garvey responds, isn't it past your bedtime? And proceeds to head on with Andy to the school. We get a lingering shot of this hooligan's face. At dinner, Jonathan Garvey compliments the food while Mary offers up more in the kitchen. And while Jonathan states he's made a pig of himself already, his words, not mine, Adam encourages Jonathan to have more. He's not happy with leftovers. Noticing the silence, Adam asks Andy how he's doing. Andy simply states, all right, and admits to just taking some time to adjust to the new settings since they've only been there since that afternoon. Outside, that group of hooligans is raising the volume again. Jonathan Garvey leaves the table to look out the window and inquires, does this happen all the time? He's informed almost continuously. In fact, this group of hooligans don't even mind the sheriff. There's some talk about the crime rate going down a little since Pete Rollins has started his patrol. Mary mentions how someone broke into the school. The group of hooligans is suspected, but there's no evidence. Mary states that she feels good it will not happen again, since last time Hester Sue threw a silver hammer at the perpetrator. As the meal comes to a conclusion, Jonathan shares word how Charles is coming into town next week and how he plans to take them all out for dinner. Giving the Kendalls a hug, Jonathan states it feels good to be with friends. Back over at Garvey Freighting Company, which is also the new Garvey estate, Jonathan is up doing some paperwork. He turns and tells Andy that he'll have the light out in a minute. Andy, sitting on the edge of his bed, responds with a, it doesn't matter. Jonathan Garvey can tell something is up and leaves his desk and has a seat next to his son and inquires for him to share his feelings. And finally, we get 
an honest moment from Andy and his feelings about what happened at the school fire. He admits that seeing Mary and Adam, it just made him feel angry. Andy's feelings have been bottled up for a while because he continues by saying if it hadn't been for them and their baby, Ma would still be alive. Jonathan gives his son a hug. Andy starts to apologize for his feelings. Taking a deep breath, Jonathan Garvey tries to Charles Splain that when you're hurting, you think crazy thoughts. I blamed God, and I turned my back on him. When you lose someone like your ma, it leaves some awful scars. Because we loved her so much, we're going to hurt for a while. But in time, we won't blame anybody. He gets up to head over to the table and turn out the lamp. Andy makes the request that Jonathan stay up with him till he falls asleep. Like when I was little and Ma was away. Jonathan has a seat next to Andy's bed and holds his son's hand as Andy, with tears streaming down his face, falls asleep. Cut to later that night and someone is picking the lock at the Garvey Freight Company. No surprise, it's a group of hooligans, and they are doing a really good job of cleaning the place out. It's like they've done this before. That's until one of them drops a box of dishes. Needless to say, the hooligans all jump into a wagon and make a loud getaway as Jonathan Garvey puts on some pants and starts chase on foot. With the wagon long gone, Jonathan then heads over to the sheriff's office. And the sleepy-eyed sheriff is fast asleep in one of his holding cells. Jonathan Garvey comes and shakes him awake. The sheriff pulls out a gun. And this is how we meet Sheriff Pike, who is not sympathetic at all when he hears Jonathan Garvey's warehouse was broken into. In fact, when asked if Jonathan saw the perpetrators, he responds with a no. But he knows it's the same hooligans that they've heard all night. Sheriff Pike offers an apology and states there's nothing he can do, not without evidence or positive identification. Jonathan Garvey says, well, thank you for nothing, and leaves. The next day... Jonathan Garvey is installing new locks on the doors. No surprise, Pete Rollins shows up, along with the town banker, a Mr. Elijah Patman. The two men offer sympathy, thoughts and prayers, after Jonathan being robbed on his very first day in town. We also find out in this moment that the bank is the only business not to be hit by any theft. And the reason for that is because Mr. Elijah Patman is packing heat, revealing a gun and a holster underneath his jacket. Jonathan Garvey comments how he's happy some people are taking 
the defense so seriously, but wonders if carrying a gun is just asking for trouble. He states how people expect Pete Rollins to be carrying a weapon. It's his job. And with a chuckle, Elijah Patman says he has no intention of shooting anyone. Jonathan Garvey then suggests that Elijah Patman leave his gun at home, securely locked away, and no need to think about it. Elijah Patman giggles and respects the difference of opinions and heads back to the bank. Jonathan Garvey calls Elijah Patman a nervous little fellow. Pete Rollins agrees and continues that Elijah is not the type of person who should be armed. And getting a little friendly, Pete Rollins then asks Jonathan if they could be on a first name basis. And I have to say, I'm just noticing Pete Rollins has a scar on his right cheek. He again apologizes for the robbery and in the same breath, again, offers his security services. Jonathan Garvey still says no. He's annoyed that essentially he would be paying double for security to Pete and also to the sheriff. Again, Pete accepts this response and says, client or not, if he sees someone trying to break in to Garvey Freight and Company, he will stop them. Cut to what we could safely say is the leader of the hooligans who notices the new locks that have been installed on the Garvey Freighting Company and proceeds to send his own bit of freight over to Jonathan, who seems to just gladly accept this mysterious package, which is terrible because later that night it is revealed that the cargo is a Trojan horse. One of the hooligans manages to make his way out of the box and opens up the door from the inside. Cut to the next day. A fuming Jonathan Garvey is stomping down Main Street, sleepy eye. He comes across the hooligans and delivers a very mean glare and receives a mocking smile from the head hooligan. Jonathan is back at the sheriff's office, and he's told the same excuse, that with no ID, evidence, proof, nothing can be done. Jonathan looks at the sheriff, looks at his badge, and tells him, you're no sheriff. From outside, we hear those hooligans catcalling to Jonathan Garvey to come on out. Jonathan points outside and states, they are laughing at us. They are LOLing at the law. And when asked, WWJGD, what would Jonathan Garvey do? Jonathan Garvey says he would search houses. Sheriff Pike admits that's what he wants to do. But it's something he can't do solo. He needs a deputy. And the hooligans, they know this. Sheriff Pike states that if he comes without evidence, he risks retaliation, beating, or possibly death. Jonathan Garvey heads to the window and looks out at that gang of hooligans 
And this is when, finally, we find out Head Hooligan? His name is Tim Mahoney, and he lives out with his dad outside of town. And they are the wealthiest people in town. And right then and there, Jonathan Garvey takes the job as deputy in addition to running a freighting company. He even gets his own star. We find ourselves over at Mahoney Manor. We're introduced to Mr. Mahoney. Deputy Garvey shows up with reason to believe that Mr. Mahoney's son is involved with a number of break-ins that have been happening in the area. Mr. Mahoney, right off the bat, states his boy has no need to steal. He provides everything his son could want. Jonathan inquires if he can go see Tim's room, which is granted. And inside Tim's room, Jonathan Garvey is dumping out drawers, checking wardrobes, flipping mattresses, and the search is revealing nothing. Mr. Mahoney admits his son is a bit of a hellraiser, but he's not a thief. Deputy Garvey inquires to Mr. Mahoney if Tim spends time anywhere else. And despite his height, Deputy Garvey does not notice the attic crawl space right overhead until he finally does. Crawling up on top of a table, Deputy Garvey makes his way into the attic and we see old chairs, a dressmaker mannequin, cobwebs, Checking a back corner, Deputy Garvey finds an old chest. The only thing in the attic that is not covered in dust. And inside is a whole bunch of silverware and bling. We cut back to the sheriff's office. And those retrieved goods are being returned. Well, everything except a silver service set. Mr. Mahoney then inquires to Sheriff Pike what happens next and he's told tim gets locked up and has to wait there until the district marshal comes to town and takes him to mankato for trial and when tim mahoney asks his father for help mr mahoney says no then calls his son a common thief tim mahoney declares he's never done this before and continues by insisting he wasn't part of the gang that robbed Jonathan Garvey. While Mr. Thorne is excited to have his property returned, he doesn't understand why the son of the richest man in town would steal. Tim Mahoney's grabbing for anything. He's lying so hard. His dad just watches in the background. That is until Mr. Mahoney suggest the charges be dropped. The stock has been returned, and he promises that he will pay for any lost merchandise, plus a little extra for the inconvenience. However, Mr. Mahoney concludes that he promises to disown his son if the boy ever disgraces the family name again. Mr. Thorne, looks at Sheriff Pike and inquires if this is legal. And Sheriff Pike responds, it hits the gray zone. But even if Mr. Thorne decides not to press charges, Jonathan Garvey still could. And ugh, Jonathan Garvey inquires to Tim Mahoney if he promises 
not to do this again. And there is the biggest trifecta, facepalm, eye roll, and head shake from me when Jonathan Garvey drops the charges. And while Mr. Thorne is offered some sort of compensation, Jonathan Garvey is not. We cut to the room of Tim Mahoney, who is getting reprimanded from Mr. Mahoney, who knows perfectly well that everything Tim Mahoney stated in the sheriff's office was a complete lie. And the thing he still wants to know is why is his son stealing? Tim responds he wants money of his own. Not simple change he gets from his dad, but big money like his dad has. Mr. Mahoney looks at his son. I didn't wait for clouds to open up and hand me money. I worked for it. Work is the only thing in this life. And I hope you learn that, boy. And while Tim Mahoney grabs his hat and leaves his room, Mr. Mahoney can only say, God help that boy. We cut to the next day at Garvey Freight and Company. Charles has arrived with a delivery. Charles jokes about Jonathan Garvey's new deputyhood. And at that moment, Pete Rollins shows up and compliments Jonathan Garvey on breaking a case. Pete Rollins jokes, hopefully my job just got easier, and proceeds to exit the scene. Charles comments how Pete Rollins seems like a good man, before receiving a list from Jonathan Garvey of all the stolen items in town, and encourages Charles to keep one eye open. Deputy Garvey then suggests there's a possible middleman involved taking the items out of town. Charles promises to keep an eye open and says goodbye to Deputy Garvey. Back over in Walnut Grove, Charles arrives with a delivery for the mercantile. Mr. Olson is so happy they have a new item in stock. It's a telephone pad. You can write down messages if you missed a call. Harriet Olson steps outside, beaming. She has something she wants to show everyone. And escorting her husband and Charles into the dining room, she wants to share her new silver service tea set that she managed to get at cost. As Harriet continues to go on about her new silver service tea set, Charles picks up one of the pieces and flips it over and pulls out that long list from Deputy Garvey, and then tells the room this merchandise might be stolen. And Harriet wants to know how she purchased it in Lamberton from a very reputed seller. Charles inquires who. We are told a Mr. Jenkins who wouldn't deal with stolen goods. However, Charles shares the list of stolen merchandise and mentions the rash of robberies in Sleepy Eye. And Harriet, if it's stolen property, do I get my money back? She's told no, and Harriet starts to whine how this is all unfair. We cut to Lamberton. Private investigator Charles is on the scene, talking with a Mr. Jenkins. And Charles is formed a man named Mr. Spokes sold the merchandise to Mr. Jenkins. 
stating it was unclaimed freight. We also find out they have been working together for the last few months. This is when Charles inquires what Mr. Spokes looks like. And blah, 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 blah. The only important detail that is taken away from this conversation is that Mr. Spokes has a scar on the right side of his face. We cut back over to Sleepy Eye. Pete Rollins, Mr. Spokes, heads into Sheriff Pike's office. Deputy Garvey is there, as is Charles, and that silver tea service set. Oh, and a smiling Sheriff Pike. Deputy Garvey shares that they found the missing set in a different town, which elicits a chuckle from Pete Rollins. Huh, you keep this up? You'll put me out of business. This is when Mr. Jenkins from Lamberton steps into the room and positively identifies Mr. Spokes as Pete Rollins. Outside, we see Tim Mahoney and the hooligans watch as Pete Rollins is loaded into a paddy wagon and shipped off to Mankato. One of the hooligans states if Pete Rollins starts to talk, we're all going to be in big trouble. They all turn and look at Jonathan Garvey and put the blame on him. There is a long stare down between Tim Mahoney, the hooligans, and Deputy Garvey and Sheriff Pike. We cut to dinner with Adam and Mary, who were talking about Deputy Garvey's first case. They joke how the town folk are thinking of firing Sheriff Pike and promoting Jonathan Garvey into his position. Jonathan, Deputy Garvey, states that he does not have time to be anything more than a part-time deputy. He's got a business of his own to run. Changing the conversation, Adam inquires to Andy, how is school? Andy says it's fine. When asked how his homework is done, Andy states he's completed most of it. And for me, there's a WWAGS. What would Alice Garvey say? Actually, Jonathan Garvey must hear her voice in his head and tells Andy to head back home to finish up his work, which he does. And as Andy is walking the crowded streets at night of Sleepy Eye to the warehouse, upon unlocking the door, he is bum-brushed inside by Tim and the hooligans, who are all wearing masks to conceal their faces. We cut back over to Mahoney Manor. Mr. Mahoney is in the chair reading a paper when he gets a knock at the door. It's Jonathan Garvey asking for Tim, who of course is not home. And when Mr. Mahoney inquires what this is all about, Jonathan Garvey states that Tim and the hooligans waylaid my son and beat the daylight out of him. He continues by saying they all had bandanas on, but a misstep allowed Andy to positively identify Tim Mahoney. Mr. Mahoney grabs his hat and jacket and joins the search for his son. Back in town, Sheriff Pike stops and informs us that Tim and the hooligans are over in the saloon. Mr. Mahoney announces he is going to handle this. And stepping inside the saloon, we see Tim Mahoney and the hooligans doing some shenaniganing. 
But the room goes silent when Tim Mahoney looks up and says, Hello, Pop. Mr. Mahoney enters and begins to address his son. It's been said you and the scum beat up the Garvey boy. Tim claims he's innocent, but Mr. Mahoney is not buying it. After repeating denials of involvement, Mr. Mahoney has had enough, grabs his son, and pushes him into the wall, demanding to know the truth. Tim Mahoney admits to it and claims that when Jonathan Garvey arrived in town, he brought all this trouble with him. His words, not mine. And just before for Mr. Mahoney is about to deliver a punch to his son, Jonathan Garvey steps in. This is not the way. And, well, thank you, because what Mr. Mahoney says next hurts worse than any punch, kick, knee, elbow. You beat someone half your size. A lonely little child trying to live his life with the loss of his mother. And you Beat him! A shameful piece of nothing you are. A liar, thief, a coward. I won't live with a disgrace of you being my son any longer. Get to the house, get your things, and get out. I don't want to see your face ever again in my lifetime. While Tim Mahoney tries an uh-oh-pa, Mr. Mahoney yells, Get out. Tim Mahoney grabs his jacket and leaves. And back in his room, he is packing his bags. But we also find out he's packing heat. Next day, at Garvey Freighting Company, Andy is sitting up in bed and, ugh, well, he looks beaten. Jonathan Garvey shares the news that Pete Rollins has testified and all the hooligans will soon be gathered up by the marshal who's coming into town soon. At this moment, Elijah Prattman enters and announces how the city council has decided to fire Sheriff Pike and promote Deputy Garvey. In fact, Sheriff Pike has already been served his papers. This is not what Jonathan Garvey wants to hear. Telling his son that he'll be back shortly, he's going to go talk with Sheriff Pike and the town council. Meanwhile, outside, Tim Mahoney is waiting around with his hooligans and announces his plan to rob the bank. None of the hooligans are behind this plan. We do it in broad daylight, like Jesse James. The hooligans are smart and remind us that Mr. Patman always has his gun on him. Opening up his jacket, Tim reveals, so do I. And that's when Tim and the hooligans break up, and Tim is left on a solo career. Back over at the sheriff's office, former Sheriff Pike is sharing his thoughts and feelings with Deputy Garvey, discussing the town council's decision. It's at this time a man runs into the office announcing how Tim Mahoney is holding up the bank. Sheriff Pike grabs his rifle and with Jonathan Garvey, head over to the bank. And over at the bank, pistols are drawn, and it's a standoff. Tim and Elijah are calling one another's bluff, and it's a very tense moment. 
that is interrupted by Jonathan Garvey opening up the door, which distracts Elijah Prattman just enough to fire his gun. And we see Tim Mahoney go down. We find ourselves at the gravesite of Tim Mahoney. Psalms is being read, and the camera closes in on Mr. Mahoney crying at the loss of his son. Jonathan puts a hand on his shoulder as Mr. Mahoney declares Tim was never denied nothing. He had everything. How could this be? As he walks away, sobbing. In this moment, Mr. Pike announces how he's just going to start drifting around since he isn't employed. Elijah Prattman confesses that he's no longer going to carry a weapon and makes the decision to leave everything up to the law. However, Jonathan Garvey states, Elijah better keep his weapon because there is no law in Sleepy Eye and reminds him how they fired the sheriff and how Jonathan Garvey is refusing the job. I simply cannot do it alone. And then suggests they ask Mr. Pike if he wants his job back. Mr. Pike must have taken some advice from Caroline when he tells Elijah Prattman, I'll get back to you. Elijah Prattman tells him not to take too long and leaves. Jonathan Garvey and Mr. Pike enjoy some friendly banter as Jonathan agrees to stay on as part-time deputy and admits how Andy feels his dad is such a hero since he put on the badge. Could Jonathan and Andy Garvey relocate to Sleepy Eye in just one day? No. Even though we also saw Eliza Jane travel in between Sleepy Eye and Walnut Grove, as well as Laura, all within the matter of a few hours. However, by horse, that's not likely to happen. In fact, Back at the end of season six, when Laura got her teaching position down in Curry, Minnesota, real place, we're informed the distance is only 12 miles, which is also the same distance that Laura and Almanzo traveled when Laura got her first teaching job in the book, These Happy Golden Years. And then it is also described as an entire day trip. However, sleepy eye, to Walnut Grove is nearly 50 miles. So again, Jonathan Garvey would not make it to Sleepy Eye in one day, and two, I'm pretty sure Charles wouldn't let Laura go ahead and drive that horse and wagon back and forth between the two if it was a two-day trip. And with that, let's get to reviewing and rating this episode. We finally get some sort of epilogue to the Garvey family, or what's left of it. After the tragic events of May We Make Him Proud, it takes seven episodes, and that's split between two seasons, before the Garveys get any sort of, I don't want to say closure, but really any sort of storyline that has them reflect on those events. Yes, Andy made an appearance in season six's Wilder and Wilder episode, but no mention about the loss of his mom there. In fact, 
we spend that time with Albert and his hormones as he tries to impress a girl. What the fork? Andy's confession to his dad about his feelings has been the moment I've been waiting for for some time for this kid. In fact, after their dinner with Adam and Mary, it was a relief to finally hear him voice his feelings about things. Admitting his anger towards them, also feeling guilty about his anger, him finally crying, because again, the last time we saw him cry in the aftermath, it was more so about how his father was acting, being intoxicated and staying at home all the time. Andy never got that moment until now. And yes, Jonathan does a great job of Charles explaining to Andy his own experience with grief, which we did get to see in part two of May We Make Him Proud. And while it seems Andy finally gets to voice his feelings, unfortunately, once again, he becomes the little house on the prairie punching bag. This poor kid. Tim Mahoney and his hooligans, in the words of Jonathan Garvey, waylaid him and beat him up. Back in season five, he got knocked unconscious by Judd Larrabee, who pretty much busted into the Garvey house looking for Jonathan, leading to Andy to accidentally start a fire. And then, heck, even Penelope Parker slapped him hard across the face. And although Nellie Olson didn't lay a hand on him, she sure did a great job of blackmailing him to get answers for a school test. <sighs> Poor Andy Garvey. Oh well. Here's hoping that from here on out, Andy Garvey's life starts to turn around. We also got a clear example in this episode about how finances can buy you freedom. Just when it looks like Tim Mahoney is going to be put in jail and his father just stated how he was on his own, he then does a 180 and proceeds to buy his freedom. And while the one shopkeeper gets reimbursed, not for just merely the merchandise that wasn't returned, but a little extra on the side, Jonathan Garvey has been fuming and even found this lost merchandise, albeit none of his own, but he also decides to go ahead and drop his own charges against Tim Mahoney while not receiving any sort of compensation of his own. What's going on? And trying not to open up a can of worms here, but this is also a very interesting episode where it comes to the issue of gun ownership, gun rights. So something for you to think about and something I don't want to talk about. But one thing I do want to talk about is this week's Little House moment, which, again, is going to go to Andy and his scene where he finally expresses the grief and anger that he had been storing up inside for the last seven episodes. And although the scene is eventually overtaken by Jonathan Garvey, my main focus there is for Andy, because this boy has been overlooked. And with that, let's finally get to rating this episode. 
I love that we finally, yes, get our closure for the Garveys. And while, yes, I'm aware that this was all set in motion to allow Merlin Olsen to move on from Little House on the Prairie and into the role of Father Murphy, which would begin the next year. There haven't been a lot of episodes where Jonathan Garvey was the central character and carried the entire show. So this episode almost seems like it's an audition for the Father Murphy role. Can Merlin Olsen carry an entire show by himself? Well, let's see if he can carry an entire episode by himself. And I will have to say, he kind of did. And what I do have to say, in addition to that, is that Merlin Olsen's acting abilities have definitely improved since he was introduced back in season four. And what I also really enjoyed about this episode is that we could have a story outside of Walnut Grove. In fact, doesn't really involve Walnut Grove except for in two scenes. One, where the Garveys leave. Two, where Charles solves the case of the missing merchandise. It just helped kind of branch out a little bit more, which is something I had been hoping would occur earlier in the series. And lastly, whether it be in Sleepy Eye or Walnut Grove, what we do learn is that money does not buy you happiness. And that is why we are going to give this episode a new beginning 4.75 bonnet rating. We finally got closure for the Garveys. We move them on away from Walnut Grove. We show that we can have a story that doesn't need to have Walnut Grove as the main setting, even though we've done that before. And just as the title of the episode suggests, it does give us a new beginning. And those are some of my thoughts and feelings about this episode. And as always, I wouldn't mind hearing any thoughts or feelings you have about this episode or any previous episode or season. From Plum Creek with Love at Instagram and Gmail is how you can reach me. As always, if you haven't done so already, I do encourage you to leave a rating or review on your platform of choice for this podcast. And really, any podcasts that you currently listen to and are enjoying. It helps those creators to expand their listeners. Come back next week when we go over Season 7's Fight Team Fight. And with that, we come to the end of another episode of From Plum Creek with Love, a Little House on the Prairie podcast. I'm your host, John Hernandez, and until next time... Take care.